In Harrisville, Rhode Island, there stands an 18th century farmhouse. It has 14 rooms and a large barn. A charming creek flows throughout the property. This house holds over 10 generations of memories, scars, tragedies, and death. A quaint countryside facade, once painted white, hides the darkness that many say lurks within. Only the flies that swarm the house night and day, season by season, can sense the familiar stench of rot and death that suffocates those who live within its walls. Suicides, murders, illnesses, 10 generations lived and died there, and many say their spirits still reside there. Local legend says that an evil woman by the name of Bathsheba once dwelled here, a witch who sacrificed children to Satan in exchange for youth and beauty. Many say the vile spirit of this witch refuses to leave the property, tormenting those who dare challenge her role as mistress of the house. Enter the Perrin family, party of seven, who found their dream home in this deceptively quaint farmhouse. But their dream home quickly became their worst nightmare. Spirits of all kinds roam to and from every room, hallway, shed, and cellar. Some good, some bad. The mother, Carolyn, was incessantly abused by an unseen wicked spirit. An unnatural icy chill clung to the house as did the never-ending barrage of flies. They would spend 10 years in this house making memories both good and bad, many of which inspired the 2013 film, The Conjuring. Was it a poltergeist? A demon? Angry, restless spirits? Was it purely psychological? Or was it a lethal combination of it all? Well guys, welcome back to Paranormal Community College. I'm your host, Riley, and I'm very excited to talk about our first haunting case and such a spooky one at that. I actually rewatched The Conjuring a couple weeks ago, and it's a damn good horror movie. I guess I had forgotten that The Conjuring movies are all based on the actual cases of Ed and Lorraine Warren, because I did not know the details of this true story until recently, and I'm stoked to share it with you guys. And before I begin, I promise I'm not making this up. You can believe me or not believe me. I'm not trying to make this podcast extra spooky or anything. But earlier today, I was sitting on my bed watching this ghost show and an empty wine glass sitting on my TV stand just like jumped into the air and fell to the floor. It was almost like it bounced off the TV stand. Nothing weird like that has ever happened in here and it could have been something totally normal, but I don't know. It it creeped me out. Um, There hasn't been an earthquake as far as I know. Uh, Nothing could have bumped into it, so I have no idea, but I'm thinking maybe next time I'm researching a haunting case, I maybe might burn some Palo Santo or something, so we'll see. But anyway, for this episode, we're going to look at the background of the Perrin family for a little bit. Why did they sacrifice everything to move into this house? What were they trying to escape? And then we'll talk about all the fun and freaky things they experienced at the old farmhouse. But first, I want to differentiate between what my understanding of a haunting is and what my understanding of what a poltergeist is. I think of them as two separate things. The way I understand it, a poltergeist is ultimately a psychokinetic phenomenon caused by an overload of energy and emotion in the home. Many of these times, a prepubescent girl or sometimes a boy is present and seems to be at the center of it all. However, This case is different. While everyone in the house experiences numerous things, it is hyper-focused around the mother Carolyn. Poltergeist activity usually includes things like doors opening and closing by themselves, things going missing and ending up in odd places, loud banging on the walls, slapping, biting, or pinching being felt by the experiencers, unexplainable foul odors, phantom voices, and they can even cause physical illness. To my understanding, Poltergeists are not actually spirits, just energy. Or some say they are elemental spirits who may be neither good or evil, just there. Shapeless spirits that seek out and feed off of negative energy. On the other hand, hauntings are occurrences where bona fide human or non-human spirits are present in the home. Sometimes these apparitions may be friendly, other times they are rambunctious or maybe even demonic. 
like poltergeists, they do similar things like touching or even harming individuals. Their voices may be heard. They may move things around. Cold spots and foul odors follow them. Sometimes it is a residual haunting, meaning the ghost is not sentient or actually present there, but has moved on to whatever the next phase of existence is. However, their imprint in the home or building remains, usually replaying some event over and over again. Other times, there are intelligent hauntings where the spirits react and respond to the living. This can be observed with EVPs, spirit boxes, or seances. Some people even claim to get photographic evidence of these hauntings. Why they stick around is up for debate. Some say they feel like they have unfinished business or can't move past some tragedy that may have happened to them in the past. Sometimes they're angry or sad. Other times they may be happy ghosts and seem to be fond of the living around them. Also, sometimes they're a bit frisky, if you know what I mean. But then there's the worst kind of haunting, that of a demon, an infernal spirit who feeds off chaos, fear, guilt, hatred, and death. Some say these evil spirits can oppress or possess people, making them ill, scratching them, making them hateful and violent, even possessing their bodies. Some think these demons are literally non-human spirits from hell or some other hellish dimension. Others say they are the dark, twisted spirits of human beings who are evil in life and who are still evil in death. Their presence begins to rot their victims from the inside out, and unless there's some type of intervention, they may succumb to the demon entirely. I mention all this because I think all the types of hauntings may be present in this story. And as a disclaimer, I am a pretty big skeptic when it comes to the Warrens and a lot of so-called hauntings. I tend to kind of believe many are probably just poltergeists or some kind of other psychological phenomenon, but this story may be one out of like three or four that I really, really do believe. So without further ado, let's get to know the Perrin family. The Perrin family consists of Roger, the father, Carolyn, the mother, and five daughters from oldest to youngest, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cindy, and April and their story begins in 1970. They were living in Cumberland, Rhode Island and had been for a while, and Cumberland had treated them well. A suburb of Providence, it had great schools and was a great place to raise a family. However, the summer of 1970 was a reminder of the changing times, times increasingly marked by violence and instability. The war in Vietnam was going on and there was economic turmoil that led to an increase in violence in general. Crime was rampant and encroaching upon the once peaceful suburbs. The Perrin family's neighborhood was a reflection of these societal changes in America. Most notably, these gangs of young boys who would wreak havoc on several people in the neighborhood. And we're not just talking innocent but annoying teenage boy hijinks. These boys were violent and scary, truly deranged. A teen boy had attempted to sexually assault a young girl in the neighborhood and went so far as to gag her and tie her to the playground equipment at their elementary school. The parent girls, once allowed to play outside, quite unsupervised, instantly lost their freedom after that, and Mom Carolyn became increasingly desperate to move to the country. We're gonna unfortunately get into some cases of pretty intense animal cruelty and animal death for the next few minutes, so be advised. If you are someone who really cannot handle stories of animal abuse and animal death, maybe skip the next like 10 minutes or so. But I will say it's truly an integral part of the story in the end. But if you want the too long, didn't read version, just know really, really bad stuff happened to their pets before they moved into the haunted house and it was very traumatic for them. The parents had gone on vacation for a few days and their grandma had been watching the cats. Knowing the family would return in a few hours, Grandma went on her way home, but when the parents returned, they found the house ransacked. Months worth of meat from the freezer had been stolen and their three cats were missing. They were frantic. The grandma said she had just left a short time before and they all were accounted for. But a neighborhood boy with a guilty conscience ended up coming forward. He said he was with another boy as this happened and was too afraid to stop him. He said this boy brutally murdered one of the parents' cats. He told the parents it was a 12-year-old boy, and he said this kid beat the cats with a baseball bat. They sold another one to an old lady, 
and thankfully, their third cat was found alive, although badly beaten and traumatized. As a side note, Andrea, the eldest, ended up hunting this kid down and beating the shit out of him, so kudos to Andrea. Unfortunately, that was not the only tragedy that struck the family in the summer of 1970. The family had a young dog, about a year old. She was quite literally a rare breed. She was an African Basenji, and the family felt she needed an equally unique name. They decided to name their dog Bathsheba. Now you're probably thinking, wait a minute, isn't that the same name as the evil witch lady in the story? And yeah, it certainly is. Eerie coincidence? A sign that maybe the parent haunting was perhaps psychological or trauma-induced poltergeist activity? Could be. But remember too, the Bathsheba legend did already exist, so maybe not. They said the rather strange name just kind of came to them out of nowhere. Did the evil spirit of Bathsheba already have her hooks in them? I don't know. It is a very strange coincidence, though. So Bathsheba, the dog, was closest with eldest sister Andrea. Andrea and Bathsheba went everywhere together, and Andrea had a deep, deep love for her pet. One day, Andrea and her sisters were walking the dog when Bathsheba ran into the middle of the road after a truck with a bunch of cheerleaders in the back. The bright tassels of their pom-poms caught the eye of the otherwise obedient dog, and Bathsheba darted out, yanking herself free of her leash. Andrea called her back, but it proved to be a deadly move. Bathsheba started running back to her and was struck by a car moving at a fast speed. The dog did not survive and Andrea and her sisters watched helplessly as their beloved pet suffered an unfortunately slow death. The cops arrived, but seeing no hope in saving the dog and unwilling to let her suffer, the cops shot the dog in an act of mercy. This, undoubtedly, had an extremely traumatic impact on the girls. Talk about a rough summer. But that wasn't even the end of it. One of their neighbors, whom they called Mr. Curtis, suffered a massive heart attack on his way home from work one day. He was driving his truck while this occurred and crashed into Mrs. Perrin's rock garden in the front yard. Oddly enough, people commented that Mrs. Perrin's rock garden looked kind of like a cemetery. Mr. Perrin tried to resuscitate him, but the heart attack had likely given him a quick death and he could not be revived. A few days later, Carolyn went to his house to deliver a cake and offer her condolences to his family. However, Mrs. Perrin's gift was not well received. They refused to take her cake, blaming her for his death and actually called her a witch, saying her weird cemetery-looking rock garden was to blame in some way. Needless to say, they needed a fresh start, and Carolyn was insistent, maybe even a little bit neurotic, about moving to the country, and it's totally understandable. I would be too. However, Roger said they needed time to save. He was on board with getting out of Cumberland and moving someplace safer, but Roger was a pragmatic man. They simply could not afford to move right then. But Carolyn decided to take matters into her own hands. She was desperate. She found an ad for a large farmhouse in the country. It was 3,000 square feet and sat on eight and a half acres of land. It had 14 rooms, plenty of room for her daughters to run around. It had a cellar, a barn, a creek, historic charm. Carolyn fell in love. It was definitely out of their price range over half a million dollars in today's money, but still very modestly priced for its size. It was well past nine o'clock, but afraid she'd miss her shot, Carolyn called the realtor and made an appointment to take a look at the house the next day. Carolyn didn't tell Roger about any of this. So long story short, Carolyn was immediately sold on the property. Built in 1736, yes, that's right, 1736, old as hell, there were obvious issues with some of the infrastructure, but it was relatively minor compared to the size and beauty of the property. Mr. Kenyon, the property owner, was a kind old man, excited to sell the home to a large family who would enjoy it and fill its halls with laughter and good memories. Now, in Rhode Island, realtors aren't legally required to inform buyers of murders or suicides in the homes they are selling, which is kind of a funny human thing, right? Like, even if we don't believe in ghosts, no one wants to live in a house where a tragic death happened. It's like we instinctively know that that just can't be good juju. But honestly, I don't think Carolyn would have even cared if she had known just how many deaths, brutal and tragic deaths at that, had occurred there over the centuries. 
without even talking to her husband, Carolyn made an offer, a modest one, perhaps too modest, but she was desperate for the home and thought it was worth the shot. Carolyn offered $500 to hold the house, which totally drained their bank account. And Mr. Kenyon said he would be patient and wait until her and her husband could save some money, that he wanted her to have the home, and he couldn't wait to meet the rest of her family. He promised he would not show the house to anyone else, and that, essentially, it was hers. Carolyn would later find out that no one, not a single soul, had even tried to make an offer on the property. So, as you can imagine, Roger was pretty freaking pissed when he found out Carolyn basically bet their whole life savings on this house, all their savings and then some that he was going to have to work extra hard for in order to afford the home. Threatening to pull out of this secret little arrangement, Carolyn begged Roger just to come and take a look and to trust her. So the family loads up into the car and makes a trip over to Harrisville to have a look at their home. And they love it. The whole family loves it, even Roger. While Roger wasn't a fan of all the electrical work that needed to be done, as soon as he saw the creek and how happy his wife was and how happy his children were, running around and climbing trees, he was sold to. It would take nearly five months for the family to come up with the rest of the money, but they did it. And in the bitter cold of January of 1971, the family said goodbye to crime-ridden Cumberland and walked into the home of their dreams. Mr. Kenyon was there to greet them on their first day home and would check in from time to time over the years. When he left them that first night, Mr. Kenyon whispered one ominous piece of advice to Mrs. Perrin. He said to her, for the sake of your family, leave the lights on at night. So let's take a look into some of the dark history of the farmhouse at 1677 Round Top Road. The property was deeded in 1680, and in 1736, the house that still stands on the property today was built by a talented shipwright. During hurricanes and terrible storms, other properties suffered a lot of damage, but not this house. Its walls and arches were built to withstand violent storms and blizzards, and to keep the house cool on the hot summer days. The house was originally owned by the Arnold family, and with that first family, the history of death and tragedy begins. Mrs. John Arnold, in her 90s, hung herself in the barn. A relative found her gray, stiff body hanging there days later. A man by the name of Johnny Arnold decided upon the same fate for himself, hanging himself in the eaves of the house, presumably, according to Andrea Perrin, where he still remains. Reports of children drowning in the river happened on a few occasions. Some say not all were on accident. Another family member, a woman by the name of Harmony, committed suicide by poison. A farmhand raped and brutally murdered an 11-year-old girl by the name of Prudence Arnold. Four men, apparently soldiers, froze to death during a whiteout. They sought shelter in an old blacksmith shop on the property, never knowing how close they were to the warmth of the Arnold estate. And they perished that night. Their bodies were not found until several weeks later during the spring. And then there was Bathsheba, who Andrea calls a God-forsaken soul. Bathsheba Thayer was born in Rhode Island in 1812. She eventually married a man by the name of Judson Sherman, and the well-off couple moved into the farmhouse next to the Arnold estate in 1844. Judson worked as a farmer, and she took on the role of housewife. Many say that Bathsheba lived in the house at 1677 Round Top Road, but I did some research and she was actually a neighbor, apparently. One of them, however, was a distant relative of the Arnolds. Bathsheba had four children in total, but only one of them survived past the age of four. There is apparently one suspected picture of Bathsheba. Innocent enough looking, she was wearing a 19th century style hat or bonnet with feathers, a long dress, and she was wearing a face mask. There are about a dozen or more people in the photograph, but she is the only one wearing a mask. And I'm talking like a COVID style face mask, not like a Halloween mask. But it has not been proven for sure that this is indeed Bathsheba Sherman. 
Some think Andrea Perrin stumbled upon this picture and claimed it was Bathsheba to add to the credibility of her story. The legend of Bathsheba the witch, though, is real, meaning the legend is an actual local legend, not that she was proven to be a witch. Suspicion arose when an infant died while in her care. Apparently, the cause of death was determined to be that the infant was stabbed in the back of the neck with a large sewing needle. So disturbing. That bit of knowledge was apparently acquired by Carolyn when she started researching the history of the area and of the house, and it's a key detail for later. Neighbors began accusing Bathsheba of being a witch, claiming she sacrificed the infant to the devil. She was investigated by police, but they had no evidence to support the neighbors' claims, and she was let go. However, Andrea Perrin claims that some woman told her that Bathsheba was known to treat the help badly and that she would starve and beat the farmhands. All rumors, but who knows. Legend states that Bathsheba lived to be an old woman and that she died from some sort of rare paralysis which literally turned her body to stone. Another legend states that Bathsheba committed suicide in the Arnold Estate. However, there is no evidence for either of these things, so we can't be sure. What we do know is that she did die an old woman in 1885, cause of death unknown, and her actual grave is located in downtown Harrisville. But let's skip back to January 1971. It was the family's first night in the home, and they were damn near freezing to death. They had to wear sweaters and put numerous blankets on top of them just to stay somewhat warm. Sure, it was January, but this was just ridiculous. I believe it was Cindy who said she straight up saw a ghost basically the second they walked in the house on moving day. He was just standing in the parlor. And the other girls would eventually see him as well. This ghost, who was relatively harmless, was affectionately named Manny by the daughters. At first, even though the girls were all having their own experiences, they didn't really talk to each other about it. And really, they kind of liked the ghost, as crazy as that sounds. They claimed some invisible spirit would tuck them in at night and kiss their foreheads, that the spirit smelled sweet and lovely and made them feel at ease. The youngest, April, became close friends with a little boy ghost, apparently, and she became very distraught when the Warrens eventually were brought in to get rid of the ghost. She didn't even tell anyone about this ghost because she wanted to keep him around. He was nice. They'd note other benign spirits, such as what appeared to be a father and son always staring at the wall. They said it looked like they were staring out a window, and that perhaps a window had been there at some point. Cindy, who was one of the younger children, seemed to experience the most out of the daughters. She, like April, also had a ghost friend, the ghost of a little girl. Cindy also claimed early on that she heard a voice in the middle of the night say, seven dead soldiers lie in these walls. Creepy. I gotta say, kids are creepy, man. They are like little ghost magnets. But one experience Cindy had terrified her and left her scarred for life. Her and Christine shared a room and she remembers one night she looked over at Christine. She said it looked like her body had been completely overtaken. She was sitting up on her bed and it looked like snakes were writhing around in her skin and that her face was twisted and distorted. Carolyn, the mother, almost immediately noticed that the house was quite odd. No matter how hard she tried, no matter what she did or how many sweaters or jackets she wore, no matter how high she turned up the heat, she was like permanently frozen. Her bones and joints ached constantly from this bitter cold that seemed to follow her day and night. Because Mr. Kenyon had sealed up all the fireplaces in the house. And so Mr. Kenyon, he was this sweet old man and the family, especially the daughters, loved him and he would come over here and there to visit the family. On his first visit, Mr. Kenyon seems to be asking some rather odd, maybe even prying questions. He seems to be a bit nervous and is asking if anything is wrong with the house? Has anything happened? And they're like, no, it's a bit chilly and there's some odd noises at night, but it's an old house. But Carolyn started to notice that the broom would disappear and appear in random places throughout the house. She felt as if she was being watched all the time. She'd hear a noise in the kitchen that sounded like metal scraping together. Random piles of dirt would appear out of nowhere. They would also randomly smell this 
horrendous odor they described as rotting flesh. This would annoy Roger to no end as he tried to find the source of it all. Flies also harassed them even in the winter months, and they said it was like these flies were impervious to their attempts at killing them. Every time they thought they had gotten rid of them, they'd just come back in a vengeance. Mrs. Perrin kept much of this to herself, not wanting to alarm old man Kenyon. However, Carolyn did ask, you know, I'm really cold, why are the fireplaces sealed? Andrea says Mr. Kenyon kept avoiding the question, which seemed out of character for him. He was always so eager to help and answer questions as much as he could. But Carolyn kept politely inquiring and he just said, oh, sparrows live in the chimney. Rapidly, Carolyn started to become a shell of the woman she once was. She lost a bunch of weight and she was already rather frail. She'd suffer from unknown bruises on her body. It sometimes hurt to walk because her joints and bones felt so stiff from the cold. She would sometimes become overly irritable, which was out of character for her. But one day, Carolyn says to herself, screw it, I'm tearing up that damn fireplace so we can get some heat in this house. After a long and painstaking process, Carolyn clears out at least one of the fireplaces and is pretty proud of herself, and it definitely helped solve part of the heating problem, although they would still experience cold spots throughout the house. However, as soon as she cleared out that chimney, everything got worse. After this, the pantry door kept inexplicably opening by itself and would refuse to stay latched. At the back of the pantry was a door to the cellar. The cellar emanated a terrible stench that Roger could not figure out. And whenever that pantry door opened, the stench just would overwhelm the lower level of the house. They could find no dead vermin or any other reason for that horrible smell. One day, little April stood in front of the pantry door and told her mom, something bad happened here. One afternoon, Carolyn had gone to the barn. The weather was warming up and she wondered if maybe they could have some goats or other animals at some point, still determined to make this her family's dream home. She's walking around the barn when a scythe hanging above the upper level flies off the wall and flings itself at her. The scythe hit her shoulder and if it hadn't been for her heavy jacket, Carolyn could have been seriously injured. Carolyn also claims that she was stabbed in the calf by a large sewing needle, much like with the story of Bathsheba and that child. Now, Roger was a traveling salesman and he was gone a lot. He didn't get to experience much of this activity, and so when he'd come home and Carolyn would tell him everything that was going on, he would simply tell her that she was confused or paranoid, that there was nothing paranormal about the house, and she needed to essentially get over it. Picture the stereotypical horror movie dad who thinks his wife and children are crazy, and that phantom odors of rotting flesh, hordes of flies, his kids talking to ghosts, bruises all over his wife's body, you know, all that was totally no normal and they're just being hysterical. So one day, a woman from a neighboring home was over and they were all enjoying some coffee. This was the neighbor's first time visiting, but she had lived in the neighboring house for several years. Carolyn had gone to a closet real quick to help one of her daughters grab a sweater when an invisible force began incessantly beating Carolyn with a coat hanger. This violent act was witnessed by the neighbor who was oddly kind of quiet and calm, but noticeably still disturbed. However, perhaps her calmness was because she knew stuff like this happened in this house. Before she left, she simply told Carolyn, you know, the Kenyans always left the lights on at night, all day, all night. She never came by the house again after that. So after all this stuff had happened, Carolyn decided to research the history of the area and the history of her home. After all, when she bought the house, Mr. Kenyon claimed to know very little of the families that lived there before them. Yeah, right, Kenyon. You may be sweet, but you knew what you were getting them into. I think Mr. Kenyon thought maybe all the potential life the parent family would bring into the home would help quell all the activity, but it seemed to only amplify it. I think the reason he was so excited and ended up giving them this home essentially was because he really believed this was the family that could in essence maybe tame this home. That it needed life 
It needed youth. Only a special family could indeed dwell in this special house. But Carolyn found out all about the Arnold family and all the suicides, the murder of the young girl, the freezing to death of those soldiers, the drownings, and the legend of Bathsheba. When and why Carolyn and the daughters started to believe it was this Bathsheba woman terrorizing them is unclear. The Warrens claim that it was Bathsheba either directly or that Bathsheba, with all her dark and evil energy, had opened up some door to allow some demon in. Because it's the Warrens, and it's always a demon. We know this. But before we get to the Warrens, I have to tell you about what is by far the most terrifying event Carolyn and Roger experienced. Well, actually two, and you decide which is more terrifying. And after this, if you're wondering, why the hell didn't the parents simply move out? Well, remember, they blew their whole load on this house. They weren't going to be able to move out anytime soon. So, one night, Carolyn lay asleep next to her husband. With her eyes closed, she heard movement around her bed and thought it was one of her daughters. Carolyn reaches out her arms, eyes still half closed, searching for her daughter in the dark. She says, what is it, honey? But here's no reply. She rubs her eyes, now fully awake, and what she sees is a living nightmare. She at first can only make out a phantom torso, but as the apparition draws nearer, a hideous specter appears before her eyes, immobilizing her with fear. Here is an excerpt from Andrea Perrin's House of Darkness, House of Light, part of which is a description from Carolyn's diary. Its petrifying cold cut like a blade to her bones. Its noxious odor, utterly repulsive. A description conjured was beyond mortal comprehension. The dress, rusty green jersey, handmade, hand-dyed fabric. Belt cinched at the waist with an oval buckle covered in the same fabric. Vintage clothing being from another time. Ugly, beehive head, a hornet's nest. Neck snapped, hanging to the side. No eyes, no mouth. Gray mesh cobwebs. No hands, no feet. Just floating above her cold, so cold. She can't breathe. Vile, evil death, coming closer. Can't breathe, so close, wants to touch me. Head draped at an angle, wants a kiss. Dear Lord, oh my God. There it stood, its cockeyed head leaning sharply forward at a crooked angle. Broken neck, no question. Standing inside the bureau, beside their bed, a solid wooden object. It had fused with the furniture for its own nefarious purposes. This hideous creature approached silently, as if closing in to steal a kiss or claim a life. Digging her feet deeply into the covers beneath their quilt, Carolyn kicked Roger repeatedly. It drew closer. One black stick of an arm flopped down across her pillow as the entity leaned over. Breaking backward, frantically scampering away, Carolyn catapulted up against the headboard of their bed, crashing it into wrought iron hardware. Eyes sought a face. There was no face. Only a swirling, rancid mass of rotting flesh resembling a desiccated hornet's nest, covered in what appeared to be a mesh of blackened cobwebs. Carolyn jerked Roger's head severely back and forth in her desperate attempt to wake the motionless man. Sliding aside, she landed on Roger, aversion so intense its repulsive odor overwhelming it caused her stomach to heave reflexively. Carolyn fought for control, taking shallow, panting breaths, gasping for air, grasping an edge of the covers with gnarled fingers trembling she braced for impact. Yanking the blanket toward her caused it to shift, falling off of Roger, revealing his torso. The shocking sight momentarily diverting her rapt attention from the imposing apparition. She'd ceased breathing, her mind shrieking in horror. His back and shoulders, even his ribcage was scored, deeply abraded with scratches as if he'd been clawed to death by a wild animal. Seeking out the entity, she knew she was next. And again, that was from House of Darkness, House of Light by Andrea Perrin. However, 
When Carolyn turned to embrace her horrible fate, the horrible beehive-headed apparition was gone. Roger moaned and rolled over on his side, and the terrible odor dissipated. The bureau was as it should be. Unable to fall back asleep in that room, Carolyn went into the parlor and wrote down what she had seen. Among what she wrote, she says, No nightmare. This was real. God help me. The next morning, Carolyn was startled as she noticed Andrea reading what she had written in her journal. Then Andrea said, Mom, I've seen her. I saw her in my dream last night. She said she wanted to hurt you. You were screaming and I wanted to help you, but I couldn't. Carolyn, in an attempt to console her daughter, says, I have no idea what happened to you or to me. Sometimes when people are really close, connected to each other, they think the same thoughts or feel the same emotions at the same time. Maybe that explains it. Andrea then told her mom that she sees shadows in her room and that she sometimes hears voices before she goes to sleep, but that she can't understand what they're saying. She also says she feels like she's always being watched and that stuff moves around on her desk when she's doing homework. Then rushes in all the stories of everything the girls had seen and the mom is overwhelmed to say the least, especially because she knows Roger isn't going to believe any of it. Even though when he woke up, woken up by all the ruckus and talk about ghosts downstairs, he demanded to know what the hell happened to me for he indeed had scratches up and down his back and chest. It was going to take something drastic and truly terrifying for Roger to believe his wife. But first, there was another occurrence that happened before the Warrens intervened. Again, Carolyn was awoken in the middle of the night. This time, her room was lit in flames. Now, before this, Carolyn had had an accident on the fireplace where her slippers caught on fire as she was wearing them, and Roger thankfully came to her rescue before any real harm was done to her, but apparently fire was one of Carolyn's like biggest fears. But anyway, that night amongst the phantom flames, Carolyn sees that grotesque beehive-headed torso with stick arms and cobwebs about its head along with a group of black hooded figures who had pitchforks in their hands. From this sight, she hears terrible voices chanting, growing louder and louder, shaking the house and rattling the glass in its windows. Among the crowd of infernal spirits, she sees two children, a young girl and a young boy. The sound of drums pounded in her ears. The beehive entity drew closer to her and this time she could see its face. Black eyes, the nose appearing to be rotting off, decaying flesh dangling from within the cobwebs. That same familiar hideous smell. And this next part is where Andrea straight up loses me because this is what she says the spirit says and by the way the family says andrea isn't exaggerating but like i'm sorry i can't believe all this happened and that the mom remembered these exact words but here goes was mistress once afore ye came and mistress here will be again will drive ye mad with death and gloom will drive ye into satan's tomb Thus has been spoken, thus has been read. Take leave of this place, or ye too will be dead. Sorry, don't believe it. Drawing the line here. <laughs> Sounds like this is literally from the movie Hocus Pocus. I believe they experienced paranormal stuff in that house for sure, but if you read Andrea's book, like, it has to be very much embellished. And I have to believe this is a very strong embellishment in this case right here. And unfortunately, it really ruins a lot of the credibility for me, at least in some regard. I can believe that Carolyn was having nightmares and that they could have been even supernatural or influenced by something supernatural, but I don't believe the ghost told her a messed up poem like that and that she remembered it and it just sounded that great. Like, I just don't. Because then the beehive Bathsheba lady or whatever swirls around Carolyn as Carolyn tries to attack her. but beehive-headed lady floats over Roger like in a frisky way like she wants to bang Roger which is a theme I thought kind of unnecessary so I've left it out but yeah broken neck lady had the hots for Roger 
Apparently, when Roger woke up, he wondered why the bed had moved to the middle of the room and why his back was hurting. He yells at her, meaning Carolyn, and blames it all on her and says, you know, it's all her fault and that she's sick in the head and blah, blah, blah. Okay, so that was all quite a bit. Um, And now we're going to get to the point where the Warrens come in. And I'm just going to give a very brief two-minute background about Ed and Lorraine Warren because I think most people at least have some idea who they are. Ed has since passed, but they were a married couple that traveled around the country investigating hauntings and possible possession cases. Lorraine was a medium, and Ed was a demonologist, and somehow the only demonologist recognized by the Catholic Church, who was not a priest himself. Unlike the movies, Ed would never perform an exorcism himself, as the Warrens were beholden to the Catholic Church, and as per the Vatican's rules, only an exorcist, who has to be a priest, can perform an exorcism. If it's not ringing a bell yet, they're the ones who have the haunted Annabelle doll in their basement under lock and key. Now, I know people feel very strongly one way or the other about the Warrens. Personally, I am not their biggest fan. I don't have much of a problem with Lorraine. I think she may be gifted with some kind of sensitivity to the spirit world. Maybe she did want to genuinely help people. However, I'm not a fan of Ed. He comes off very much like the grifter type in some cases. On one occurrence, he supposedly told some other medium who was looking for advice from the Warrens, like, hey man, don't you know you're sitting on a gold mine here? It is just hearsay, but if you are an avid Warren supporter, please feel free to change my mind. That being said, they certainly set the stage for some killer horror movies and podcast episodes, so I gotta hand it to them for that. So the Warrens come in and immediately they're like, yeah, something really dark and evil is here. Unlike the movie, it's not like they show up and stay there until the evil spirit is gone. They drop in here and there, interviewing the parents and conducting their own investigations. Roger wasn't a fan of this, but he thought if they could help put his wife at ease, what the hell. They'd often bring in another medium to assist them by the name of Mary. At some point, as mentioned before, it was determined that it was likely the spirit of Bathsheba or that she had opened up some door in the house allowing something evil, possibly a demon, to enter the home. Lorraine and Mary became increasingly concerned about Carolyn, who was truly like a battered woman at the hands of this unseen force. They were also concerned that the evil presence was negatively affecting both Carolyn and Roger's moods, because whenever the subject of a seance was brought up, the two were vehemently reluctant, even combative. They said Carolyn would politely agree to it, then lash out and say she didn't want to do it. The Warrens worried Bathsheba really had her clutches in her and was preventing her from being free and from wanting to be involved with this seance. However, Roger and Carolyn eventually agreed. The Warrens returned with a priest, Mary, the medium, some tech guys who set up recording equipment and other rudimentary 1970s ghost-catching equipment, and they brought on a medical doctor from Duke University. So the night of the seance, they set up in the cellar. The children, of course, were not allowed. However, Andrea and two of her siblings snuck on down and watched from the stairs. Or so, that's what Andrea says. Before the seance can truly begin, it's clear that something is gravely wrong with Carolyn. She becomes so weak and listless, she can hardly walk. She's like an old woman, needing help walking to her chair. She's not speaking. It was like she was catatonic. She then begins to speak in some kind of garbled language they couldn't understand. Her nails were digging into her chair and she started writhing about in pain. Her face contorted and Andrea says her eyes were not her own. She elicits wild screams like an animal howling into the night. Whatever words she is uttering, no one can tell, but Andrea says she looked evil and wicked. Then, much like the movie, I promise I'm going from Andrea's account, which has been corroborated by the family, I'm not going by the movie here, it is said that Carolyn's chair levitated, hovering above the ground. Roger at this point is freaking out and is like, 
Hell no. Like, we gotta stop this whole thing. Like, do something. My wife is freaking floating here. But the chair, with Carolyn in it, is thrown across the room by some unseen force, leaving Carolyn lying on the cellar floor. Roger runs to his wife and is like, that's it, we're done here, never come back to my house again, you weirdos. And Ed is trying to stop him from getting to his wife and Roger punches that dude in the face. Is it bad? I mean, I know Roger has been kind of a dick in this story, but I kind of want to give him a high five for this. He just saw his wife catapulted across the room by an invisible force, and he was like, nothing like this ever happened until y'all showed up. Maybe some scary apparitions and whatnot, but this, no, unacceptable. So he reaches his wife and tells them to get the F out and to never come back. They pack up all their stuff, and if you're wondering what happened to that recording equipment, shouldn't there be video evidence? Well, it all exploded, so no such luck, really. Apparently, it literally exploded. So, the Warrens leave and never come back. They say everything is just as Andrea says. The Perrin family and Lorraine Warren helped the creators of the film, and both parties were actually very pleased with it. They both say that the feeling of all that transpired in the home was well captured in the movie. They lived in that house for several years after, 10 years in total, before returning to Carolyn's home state of Georgia. Cindy felt so connected to the house, however, she stayed on as a property manager for some time. It should be emphasized that the family still says they experienced so many great memories in that house that it was not all bad. The evil presence would come and go, sometimes months would go by where the house was peaceful and calm, save for the occasional appearance of a friendly ghost or two. As much as it was a house of darkness and death, it was also a house of love, joy, sisterhood, adventure, and laughter. People who have lived in that house since do report some mild, unexplainable activity, but nothing like what the parents did. There have been some paranormal investigations in recent times where they do catch strange EVPs and stuff like that, but again, nothing like what happened to the parents. So guys, what do you all think this is? Is it indeed a true haunting? Do you think it has been embellished? Do you think it was a poltergeist or some other psychological phenomenon? I'll tell you what I believe in a nutshell. Living in a house from 1736, there's gotta be a lot of residual shit in that house, especially given all the deaths, and I can buy that it was haunted. I can buy that there were things that went bump in the night I can buy that the daughters saw these harmless apparitions because I do believe in residual hauntings. The idea that maybe people can catch glimpses of those imprints from the people of the past. So number one, yes, I believe the claims the house was haunted. Two, I definitely believe poltergeist phenomenon was present. For me, without a doubt. You have five children who are from preschool age to teenage. You have a mother who, and I do not say this as a dig, honestly, I feel a lot like Carolyn sometimes. Not haunted, but she seemed to be an anxious per person, a worrier, sensitive, nothing wrong with that. But all that energy in one home, an old spooky home at that, that can build up some crazy energy, I think. And it can manifest in potentially harmful ways. All the trauma they experienced before moving in, I think shouldn't go unnoticed either. The fact that the dog's name was Bathsheba still weirds me out. But after all, there was a woman named Bathsheba and there was a creepy legend about her. The fact that Carolyn's neighbor in Cumberland had called her a witch and then Carolyn finds herself in a home haunted by someone who was accused of being a witch is also another eerie coincidence. I really want to know what you guys think about those two coincidences in particular. But then there is this issue or theory number three for me. I don't want to speak ill of Andrea Perrin because she comes across as such a sweet and sensitive person. But straight up, like, her books have to be, like, ugh, maybe a little bit beyond embellished in some ways. She is very liberal in her prose. Her books read like a fictional novel, which is good, but at times it seems too fictionalized. At least, it seems that way to me. She uses very flowery, flowery, 
flowery language, and I think she is probably a great poet and talented, but it certainly had me questioning much of what I had read. I believe the stories of all the tragedy they experienced before moving. I believe in the history of the house. I believe they experienced very spooky things in that house that would send most people howling to the nuthouse, to quote Dean Winchester. I simply cannot believe in the Bathsheba thing all the way. I believe maybe Carolyn was being oppressed in some way, maybe by a spirit, maybe by the trauma and stress she was experiencing as an often single mother raising five girls in a big ass haunted house in the middle of nowhere with a husband who was hardly ever there. In the end, this is still one of the most convincing haunting stories I've ever heard about. Please let me know what your own thoughts are. It's so hard to say when we weren't there ourselves and we can never truly know what went on there. So whatever my theories and opinions may be, I want to clarify that I of course was not there and I don't want to totally discredit individuals who at the very least know much more about that experience than me or you ever will. I think houses have personalities. Houses develop a unique spirit about them, supernatural or otherwise. Strong feelings experienced in them, core memories made there, connect us to those houses forever. They're where we laugh, they're where we cry the hardest when no one is looking, save for the still and silent walls that surround us. They're where we eat, sleep, they're where we live, they're where we live, laugh, love, if you will, and they're special. The house on 1677 Round Top Road is special, and maybe I ought to just leave it at that. Next time, we're talking about Mount Shasta, so until then, don't let the evil ghost of Bathsheba beat you with a coat hanger, and have a great weekend. Take care, y'all.